0: Welcome to the Awakening Project podcast. We are a community of emerging adults, college students, and pastors who are passionately pursuing an awakening move of God in our generation. Thanks so much for listening in today. Our hope is that God would capture you with his vision for our world and for your life. Welcome back to this episode of the Awakening Project podcast. I'm David Thomas and I'm so glad you're joining us for this episode which takes us right into that word awakening, what we mean by that. A lot of ways to understand and define awakening but as we began back in May of 2021, we invited Steve Siemens to come and help us build those foundations. Steve is a retired professor of Christian theology at Asbury Theological Seminary, and he has walked these paths of awakening hope for decades. Steve invited us to take a good, deep, fresh look at the opening verses of Isaiah chapter 6, which present to us kind of all the different angles and facets that are a part of how God begins, what God does. As he, as he moves among people to awaken and renew them. So we hope that this episode will lay those foundations for you and your life and stir fresh encouragement to you for all that God will do and can do. So enjoy listening.
1: So what happens when awakening happens, and how does it unfold, and what are some of the, you might say, characteristics of awakening I want us to look together at a passage in the Old Testament, in Isaiah chapter chapter six, where Isaiah shares with us the vision of God that he had, uh, and uh, I'm going to ask Jackson Lachier to read this uh, passage of Scripture for us. If you have a Bible, get get it in front of you so you can keep it in front of you, Isaiah and let's just I just want to unpack this, a kind of a, a sort of share with you what I think are seven characteristics or seven steps in the unfolding of an of awakening that are kind of all right here in this one chapter, okay? Uh, Jackson was a former student of mine years many years ago, and he also was my grader for a while. So if you didn't get a good grade in basic Christian doctrine, see him, okay? <laughs> <laughs> but but re- read this. We're going to read this whole chapter of, of Isaiah 6, 1 through... 13, so awakening begins in brokenness and desperation. Notice uh, Isaiah begins this account of his vision by sort of locating it, giving us a historical marker. He says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Well, who was King Uzziah anyway? What's the significance of that little phrase? You have to go to 2 Chronicles chapter 26 if you're interested in learning more about King Uzziah. But actually, King Uzziah became king when he was 15 years old, and he reigned for 52 years. And he was actually the greatest uh, king of Judah since the time of Solomon and the, the Chronicle account says his fame spread far, and he took the kingdom of Judah to dazzling heights of prosperity and, and glory, and he extended the national boundaries, and he was a victorious general and a brilliant administrator. Mm-hmm. And during Uzziah's reign, the, the national pride was high. He was, he was a national hero, and I suspect he was probably young Isaiah's hero too but if you read the whole account in chronicles you know that his, his, his reign did not end well in fact it ended in shame and disgrace because uh, the scripture says that when he grew strong he became proud and one day he dared to do something that he should have never have done he dared to Enter into the temple, into the holy place in the temple, and in his conceited arrogance, he thought he could do what God had said only the priest could do, that is to offer the sacrifice. And he was warned. The priest said, no, you don't want to do this. But he wouldn't listen. And the scripture says that when he came out of the holy place, he came out with leprosy. The Lord had struck him. And he died an outcast. And he actually lived the rest of his life in quarantine and separation. And uh, so these words, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, are really, are really significant. Uh, The impact on young Isaiah, who had more than likely idolized the king, he was was devastated. The whole whole people of Judah were devastated. But, you know, this this is absolutely essential if there is to be awakening. Uh, Awakening, you see, always begins in brokenness and humility. And before Isaiah could see the Lord sitting on a throne, the throne room of his own heart had to be empty. Uh, Awakening, if you study awakenings historically, you study the first great awakening, the second great awakening, and uh, revivals and awakenings here and there throughout history, they're often preceded by tumultuous times of shaking and chaos and social and cultural upheaval and dislocation kind of like what we've had for the last 15 months or so. All the things, you know, that folks have trusted in, depended on, made idols out of, you know, those, those things get called into question. They no longer work anymore. All of our King Uzziah, as you might say, the things that we've looked to, Uh, And only when we reach the place of utter desperation, when we're when we've exhausted our own resources, do we turn to God. That's why, as awful as this year has been, and what Mark uh, was sharing this morning uh, about the mental health issues, you know, the, the the cultural upheaval. I mean, all of them, it seems to me that all of America's idols have been weighed and found wanting, you know, and our sins have, have, have you know, have come up and, and we've had to look at these things in the face. And it, this actually is a very promising time as a result, you, you, you I think, I actually, I actually think this is just, we've just been in the John the Baptist phase of awakening. Because wow. yeah. this is what happens. John the Baptist says that every tree that doesn't bear fruit, every tree that doesn't bear fruit is being cut down. The ax is being laid to the root of the tree. And the, the tr- things are being thrown into the fire. I think church has been called into question and is being uh, exposed and so many things. But I I just say, uh, you know, awakening always begins in brokenness and desperation. King Uzziah and our King Uzziah's need to die. I love the way Oswald Chambers puts it. He says, the greatest blessing spiritually is the knowledge that we are destitute. Until we get there, he says, our Lord is powerless. And tonight, David is going to uh, talk to us about intercession and travailing prayer. And as a result of the growing sense of brokenness and desperation, uh, awakening uh, is often preceded by or is actually a part of God's people begin to cry out. God's people begin to cry out. So in awakening, awakening begins in brokenness and desperation. And then secondly, in awakening, people are awestruck and captured by a stunning new vision of God. Hmm. Notice Isaiah says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple, and the heavenly creatures cried, holy, holy, holy. The essence of Isaiah's vision is a vision of God's holiness. He hears the heavenly beings, you know. This is a song out of heaven, isn't it, that he hears, holy, 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 holiness. God's holiness is God's otherness, his distinctness from all that is creaturely. He's the creator. We are are creatures. And and notice notice that when Isaiah says, I saw the Lord, he doesn't see God's face. He just sees the skirt, the train of his robe. That's as high uh, up as he gets to look. Because you see, and the heavenly beings, what do they do? They cover their eyes because the creaturely—it's inappropriate for us to look upon the un, uh, uh, upon God, who's the Creator. Uh, a vision of God, a vision of God that that takes Isaiah's breath away. I mean, Isaiah had heard about God; he knew God, but now he encounters Him in a new way, like he never knew Him before. And if you read the, the whole book of Isaiah, you'll find that 26 times in the book of Isaiah, uh, he uses a title for God that's found very f- in very few other places in the whole Bible. The Holy One of Israel, he calls him. The Holy One of Israel. And this always happens in awakening, folks. People who have known God meet him again in such a profound, stunning way, it's, it's almost as if they didn't even know him before. Like Peter and James and John, you know, they knew Jesus. They'd hung out with Jesus. But when they went up on the Mount of Transfiguration, they had an encounter with a Jesus they had never known. And John, who was with him then and was with him at the Last Supper and laid his head on his breast in the book of Revelation. Read John's encounter with the risen, exalted Christ in Revelation chapter 1. He has a vision, and, and his eyes, he says, were like a flame of fire, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. And when I, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. This is not gentle Jesus, meek and mild. Like Paul on the Damascus Road, he got knocked off his horse and blinded. This always happens in, in awakenings. Folks get captured by a vision of God. They see the Lord in a new and profound way. Jonathan Edwards, back during the first great awakening, talked about what was happening in this little village of Northampton in Massachusetts where God had showed up in his manifest power and presence. And he, he used this phrase, the supreme excellency of Christ, wow. to describe what happened to the people and how they were captured And I love the way he describes it. He says, by the sight of the transcendent glory of Christ, true Christians see him worthy to be followed and so are powerfully drawn to him. They are thoroughly disposed to be subject to him and engaged to labor with earnestness and activity in his service, they cannot forget him, and they will follow him whithersoever he goes, and it is vain for any to endeavor to draw them away from him. You see what happens, you know? They get seized. What was that phrase you used, Maddie? You, you know, yeah, seized. You know, they, they, people get captured and Seized you know, and uh, they can't let go of it. Mm. Mm-hmm. Awakenings uh, happen when people are captured by a stunning new vision of God. And then awakenings are characterized by the mass manifest presence of God. Yeah. I think you use that phrase, Maddie, and, you, and, 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 and you'll hear it a lot. The manifest presence of God. Notice in this passage that Isaiah sees the Lord. He sees the Lord. He hears the voices of the heavenly beings. The sounds cause the doorposts and the thresholds of the temple to shake. And the temple is filled with smoke. you, You kind of feel like you're in an Indiana Jones movie here, don't you? You know, it's just... And then later on, uh, the heavenly being comes and touches his mouth with a coal. He sees, he hears, he smells, he touches. Uh, All of these are are indicators of God's manifest presence. You know, when faith becomes sight and uh, helps us get... um, at what we mean when we talk about the manifest presence of God. Now, omnipresence, something I teach about in basic Christian doctrine, the idea that God is always everywhere present. We know that. God's always present everywhere. Whither shall I go from? That's that wonderful 139th Psalm that Alan just unpacked for us so wonderfully last night. Whither shall I go from... You know, wherever we are, God is, right? Omnipresence, that's one thing. Then there's God's cultivated presence. God's cultivated presence. Because the psalmist says, seek the Lord. And then he says, seek his presence continually. And the spiritual disciplines or the spiritual practices are really just means by, whereby we seek his presence, right? We cultivate his presence through prayer, through scripture, through community, through coming to the Lord's table. These are all, all the spiritual disciplines are just ways of seeking his presence, and we, and that's something we, we continue to do throughout our life. But God's manifest presence is something different than what we're talking about. It's not God's omnipresence, God's cultivated presence. This is where it's palpable. You might just say available to our senses. We see it. We feel it. We, we touch it. We smell it. Notice the word Glory, the whole earth is full of His glory. That word, glory, in Hebrew, kavod, uh, literally means heavy. Heavy. You can just. That's what we're talking about—the manifest presence of God. Uh, On Wednesday, when we head down to Wilmore and go to Hughes Auditorium, and when we talk about the Asbury Revival, I was a senior in 1970 at Asbury College when the revival came and broke, and more than anything else, more than anything else, uh, it was God's manifest presence that years later, 25 years later, when we kind of did a survey, what were your greatest memories of the revival? They talked about that sense of God's presence, that when you walked in there, you know, when you walked in there, you sensed God's presence in Hughes Auditorium. And the manifest presence of God is always something, you know. And I tell you, folks, it's, it's amazing how this can work. Literally, in the second great awakening, folks would get off the boat in New York Harbor and walk. You know, And, and the next thing you know, they're falling under conviction. The presence of God, you know, it just is so intense. Folks, come into that presence. Um, I, was, uh, I was reading recently uh, Michael Brown, who was a part of the Brownsville revival in Pensacola, Florida, of uh, 20 years ago, uh, it, it talked about, you know, uh, 15 years later, someone who uh, was there said, as I walked into the building, even as a hardened sinner, I began to sense a difference in the atmosphere. A strange pull began to affect me. I felt increasingly uncomfortable about my sin, but there was an unspoken yearning for truth, reality, and salvation r- r- rising in my soul. Uh, Michael Brown says, These were the words of a 17-year-old drug-abusing atheist written 15 years after recounting his dramatic conversion in one service at Brownville. And that would, that would happen. Folks would literally and we had that happen during the Asbury Revival. Folks would literally come in, some folks, there was a newspaper reporter uh, from Danville that came over and you know, three hours, they can't get away from it. The presence of God. Um, Well, um, Richard Owen Roberts, who's written a lot about revival, he's a Puritan scholar, He says, without doubt, the greatest single aspect of every true revival is the peculiar and wonderful sense of the presence of God, which is manifest. It is this mighty sense of the presence of God, which draws large crowds, produces intense conviction, causes tears to flow enables hardened sinners to fight the wrongs of years past, produces seemingly instantaneous conversions, and results in spontaneous joy and enthusiasm. Yeah, God shows up. Well, we've been here uh, almost a day now, and we haven't been to Narnia yet, have we? (laughs) But you know, in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, there's uh, actually a wonderful description of what happens in revival that ties into this. You remember when uh, Peter and Susan and Lucy, because Edward, he's off with the white witch somewhere, but um, Peter and Susan and Lucy uh, get into Narnia, and they start hearing from the beavers particularly about a prophecy about this lion king, Aslan. And they, they, Aslan's coming. And the prophecy, does anyone remember the prophecy? (laughs) Here it is. Wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. And that's a a description of what happens in true revival, that Aslan, folks, comes in sight, and he roars, and he bears his teeth, and he shakes his mane, and praise God, when that happens, we shall have spring again. The manifest presence of God... uh, the fourth characteristic or, or element in awakening, awakening leads to a profound self awareness and an awareness of sin and a confession of sin. Notice the first thing that Isaiah says in response to his vision. He cries out, Woe is me, for I am undone, I'm finished. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the king the Lord Almighty. Isn't it interesting? He has this vision of God, but seeing God causes Isaiah to see himself as never before. And it's always that way, isn't it? And notice, notice, woe, he doesn't say, woe is me, for I am so small, and God is so big and powerful. You might think He might say that, but that's not what he says. But woe is me, for I am so unholy, and he is so holy. I'm a man of unclean lips. There is a moral character, isn't there? A moral character about Isaiah's awareness here. A moral character. Awakening is marked by deep repentance and confession and the flowing of many tears. In the Orthodox tradition, they talk about the tears of the Holy Spirit. The wonderful tears of the Holy Spirit. Charles Wesley has a a phrase in one of his hymns where he talks about Exquisite distress. Have you ever experienced exquisite distress? The, the Holy Spirit is, convicts us of sin. And yet, unlike condemnation, which is kind of like a black hole, you know, where there's no, you're in the middle of a tunnel and there's no way out, there's something about conviction that's life-giving, isn't, isn't it? Exquisite Job, at the very end of the book of Job, (laughs) in in chapter 42, uh, he he says, I had heard of you with a hearing of the ear, but now I've seen you. See, he's got a vision of God, and I repent in dust and ashes. The work of the Holy Spirit in conviction. And seeing sin now, not in relation to sort of how these things that we do hurt us, or hurt others, but how it hurts God, how it breaks his heart. I just, I don't know about you, but this morning when Alan was sharing about what the father finally said to him at the very end of it all is, Alan, I just really wanted to love on you and you you haven't let me do that, you know? We begin we, be, we begin to see our sins in relation to God and how it breaks his heart the fear of the Lord I believe in the in the awakening that's coming uh, we're going to see uh, a, a and a, re- a rediscovery of the fear of the Lord. You know, one of the sevenfold marks of the Spirit that comes, in, that's mentioned in uh, chapter eleven of Isaiah, is uh, the Messiah is going to have the sevenfold Spirit, and the Spirit of the fear of the Lord will be upon him, and his delight will be in the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord that is a is a fear that's not driven by you know, fearfulness. It's driven out of love. It flows. It's, 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 I heard our uh, president at Asbury, somebody, Tim Tennant said, sin, sin is now my mortal enemy, not my secret lover. And that change happens, you know, in people, Mm. in awakening. It's not, You know, folks are willing to give things up because, you know, once you've tasted and seen something bigger and better, why would you be drawn to that anymore? Well, in awakening, number five, people experience profound divine transformation. People are transformed profoundly by the cleansing, transforming, healing, liberating love and power of God in awakenings. Then Isaiah says, one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with his tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. Man, in awakening, long-term bondages are broken in people's lives. People experience profound emotional and spiritual healing. I, I, I remember several times when I was in places like Toronto and Brownsville in the 1990s, I would, someone would be laid out on the floor for like three hours and they were groaning, and they were crying, and then they were laughing. And it was, it was almost like, you know, I'm someone that's been involved in a ministry of healing prayer with folks. But there are, there are times like in awakening where Jesus says, just, just get out of the way. I'm going to come and just do this myself. And he comes and ministers and takes people back into primal places of wounding and brokenness and hurt and just you stand in awe profound divine transformation and I you know Maddie you told your story and it just had it a, a profound transformation occurred when you got captured seized by a great affection it's amazing you know there is, by the way, a, an expulsive power of a, in a great affection. When you fall in love, a lot of things fall away, kind of like leaves in the autumn. They just kind of naturally fall off, don't they? You don't have to pull them off the tree. They just, you know. yeah. Sixth awakenings result in sending. Service and mission. Isaiah six. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, "Whom shall I send, and who will go for us?" And Isaiah says, "I'll go." And then he didn't get at, He didn't even get. He just. He volunteered, didn't he? Here am I. Send me. Notice he isn't even asked. He just volunteers. You know, there's something about the love of God that when you are captured and, and, and encountered by it, that there, you see, there is an other-centeredness in the love of God. Yeah, that's so wow. it, it goes out of love. Love has to give itself away. and it moves out of you toward the people, something's gonna, you're gonna find yourself being set free from yourself and moving out to others. You know, I think of John Wesley, uh, it was about, well, less than a year after his famous May 24th Altersgate experience, where he felt his heart strangely warmed. Uh, that, set, that, that gave him personal assurance and set him free, but it's when he starts field preaching. Leaving the church buildings and going out and preaching in, in April of the next year, that's when the revival really begins. That's when the revival starts, the Wesleyan revival. And it, it, it's it's like that. And I just thought, Maddie, you just kind of, I, I, the next thing you know, you know, you, you got sent. You said, here am I, send me. I don't, you know, when that happened, but, and the result was a prayer meeting, a prayer, you know. At, folks get sent out and pushed out of themselves as never before. And I I just want you to notice a lot of times when people read this passage, they stop at verse 8, where he says, Here am I, send me. But verse 9, God says, "Um, Okay, (laughs) go and tell this people, be hearing but never understanding, be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people callous, make their ears dull and other. Yeah, basically, God's saying, you're going to, I'm going to send you, but they're not going to listen to you, Isaiah. And Isaiah says, well, how long, Lord? Mm-hmm. And he says, well, until the cities are, it's, it's, it's not going to get any better. They're never going to listen to you. And yet Isaiah can't help but not go. Amen. Can't help but not go. He's got to go. Like Paul, you know, standing in front of King Agrippa 30 years after that life-changing encounter on the Damascus Road, he says, well, how could I be disobedient to the heavenly vision that I had? I can't, I can't stop. Lastly, by the way, uh, trust me, when awakening comes, there will be lots of resistance and opposition. Uh, it's, it just it, you, know, you can just mark that down. Uh, it was like that in Acts chapter 2. Uh, it, folks just don't quite know what to do with the manifest presence of God. It's something, you know, we just can't quite control the way we'd like to. And Isaiah is going to, the point I want to make here is he persists in the face of resistance and opposition. He, otherwise we wouldn't have this 66 chapter book (laughs) that's attributed to him, (laughs) you know, know, he, he persists. Lastly, awakening results in the expansion of God's kingdom uh, in the church and in the world. And we get actually just at the very end of this chapter, the last verse. There's this, there's, but as the terebinth or oak tree leaves stumps when they are cut down, so Israel's stump. They're not going to hear you. In fact, what what he's saying is these folks are going to get sent away to exile eventually because of their resistance. But there's going to be a remnant. And the holy seed will be the stump in the land. And actually, in chapter 11 of Isaiah, a branch will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. He's talking about the Messiah that's eventually going to come out of the remnant that's going to eventually touch the whole world. And, uh, folks, awakening awakening always leads to the expansion of God's kingdom. In new, in, 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 in the kingdom of God gets further, pushed further and further, you know, So I was in Israel in fall of 2015. And I got to meet a number of uh, Jewish leaders, Messianic Jewish leaders, people in the land over there. Many of them, I came to discover, were people who had been laboring. They were Americans. And they were people who had been laboring in Israel Uh, for 30 years or so, and you know, 40 years or so ago, there really wasn't a Messianic movement out there. But now, all over Israel are Messianic congregations. But what I noticed was, so many of these leaders were folks who had gotten turned around and radically converted during the Jesus movement, which happened in the late 1960s and early 70s. And as a result of what happened, the transformation, the awakening that happened in them, they're over there, they've been laboring for 30 years now, and guess what's happened? God's raised up messianic congregations, And houses of prayer. And now, most of those people, kind of like they're my age, they're retiring. But there's all these young Israeli, native-born Israeli leaders who are kind of moving in to take their place. And none of that was there. And none of that would have happened if it hadn't been for awakening, because awakening always results in expansion. And uh, that's ultimately why God wants to send awakening because he wants a bride for his son. And he wants that bride to include people from every tongue and tribe and nation. Places in the world right now. and People groups that have never heard his name. And uh, if he's going to move that up to another level... There's got to be awakening. Well, desperation, vision, manifestation, confession, transformation, mission, expansion. There it is. Uh, Sort of seven sort of uh, uh, steps or unfoldings in terms of what an awakening. This doesn't all happen, by the way, in six months. (laughs) And I think you all are going to get to be... uh, a generation that lives into this unfolding. And I'm excited about that. So get ready for the long haul. Mm -hmm. What's that? Yeah. uh, Desperation, Mm -hmm. vision, manifestation, confession, transformation,
0: mission, And
1: expansion.
0: Thanks for listening to the Awakening Project podcast. We're an ever growing community of people excited about the next move of God in our generation. If you have any friends who fit this description, feel free to pass along the conversation to them. We would love to invite them into this community. Thanks so much, and see you next time.